In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold well everything continues to be awesome on wall street now that investors are convinced that the fed has finished raising rates but more than that it's not just that the Fed is not going to hike rates anymore. It's that it's going to start cutting rates next year. And so the markets are excited because their drug pusher uh, is going to be showing up with, with more supply. You know, they've been uh, away from the drug for a while. Uh, the Fed's been hiking rates, and that's not what the markets want. But now the markets are convinced that exactly what they need is going to be supplied as early as next year. And so you're seeing that the averages, the last podcast I did, the markets were up. They continued to rise on the week. Uh, the stars, again, the small cap, Russell 2000 was up about five and a half percent on the week. That's about the same percentage gain that the gold stocks had. They finally came back from the dead. Although, you know, if you look at a chart, uh, they've barely resurrected. They have a long way to go, but they had a good week. Gold itself, was up about 40 bucks on the week. Again, on the idea that the Fed has finished raising rates. The broader stock market, not as strong. I think, you know, the major averages may be up about 2% on the week. Uh, bond yields continue to slip. The yield on a 10-year treasury back down at 4.44. 30-year at 4.6. So the uh, yield curve steepening a little bit. 
And the dollar continues to fall. It didn't collapse, but it was down again on the week. In fact, we closed below the 104 handle. We're at 103.88. This is the lowest close for the dollar index since, you know, I, I talked about the reversal week that we had a few weeks ago when the dollar index was above 107. Now we're beneath 104, but we still have a long way uh, to go. Now, the, the narrative, though, that is really uh, responsible for the optimism is not only the belief that the Fed is going to cut rates uh, next year, but that we're going to avoid recession. We're going to have a, a soft landing. And so this is the best of, of both worlds. We get the rate cuts, but we also don't get the recession. Now, you might think that those two views are inconsistent because why is the Fed going to be cutting rates as soon as next year if the economy is not, not in recession? Well, maybe what investors are thinking is that at a, a sign, or we've already got signs, and we've got a lot of signs now in the labor market and a lot of other data that have been coming out uh, weaker than expected, maybe what the markets are thinking is that rather than waiting to see the whites of uh, recession's eyes, the Fed will start firing its, its rate cuts in order to preempt that uh, um, recession. So to prevent a, a crash landing, uh, because as soon as it sees the economy coming in for a landing, it's going to cut rates and assure that the landing is soft. Now, I think this is uh, at best wishful thinking. I don't think this is going to happen. First of all, I think we're going to have a hard landing uh, regardless of, of what the Fed does. But it will be even harder if the Fed doesn't cut rates. I mean, if it, if it starts cutting rates, it'll try to soften the blow. But what, what's amazing to me is that you've got so many people who are looking at this situation where rates have gone from zero to above 5%. And they somehow think that we could get away without having a recession. Because soft landing means that we don't have a recession, right? We just have a slowdown. Well, why would that be? Because if you look at the recent experiences with the Fed having rates too low and then raising them, go back to the late 1990s and the uh, decline we had in the economy, the recession, the stock market in 2000, 2001. Look at the experience in 2008. And look at what happened even before COVID in 2018, when the Fed tried to raise rates uh, from a low level and had to abort it very quickly when the wheels started falling off the bus in, in the fourth quarter of, of that year. So you look at the difficulty the Fed has had in normalizing rates and look at the recessions. And in fact, in 2008, nine, that was the great recession when the Fed tried to normalize rates uh, after keeping them at 1% for a year and a half or whatever it was, and then slowly normalizing rates back up above 5%. That produced the worst recession since the Great Depression. So why would anybody believe that the Fed can normalize rates now and not have a similar uh, consequence. Because after all, the rate hikes expose all of the, the malinvestments, the misallocations of reach resources that take place when rates are artificially low. Right? The Fed keeps rates artificially low. 
And that causes consumers, investors, governments, everybody behaves irrationally based on a environment where interest rates are too low. Decisions are made, investments are made that are not really supported by the fundamentals. Now, if interest rates were low for natural reasons, for reasons having nothing to do with the Fed, how would interest rates be low for natural reasons? Well, they would be low if you had a lot of savings. If Americans were saving, you had a huge supply of savings, uh, that would mean there'd be a lot of funds for people to borrow. And if there wasn't a lot of borrowing going on, um, you know, if consumers were buying stuff for cash and not using credit cards or other forms of debt, so you didn't have a lot of borrowing and you had a lot of savings, and of course you had low inflation, uh, because low inflation is also important. If you had all these factors, and, 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 and when people are saving, if Americans had a high propensity to save, that would mean that they don't want to go out and spend. They're, they're, they're delaying their consumption. They're saving instead. And so the time preference for money uh, is affected by that. And so because people aren't spending and they're saving their money, that means there's money available to finance long-term investments so that businesses can borrow money to build a capital that will produce goods in the future when these frugal Americans uh, are going to tap into their savings, right? So when you have uh, Americans preferring to consume in the future rather than today, you can have low interest rates uh, in that environment. But that is not the environment that we're in. There are no frugal Americans. We're living for, for now. Everybody is profligate. Nobody cares about the future. People want to buy stuff right now. Nobody wants to wait. Uh, you know, they want to buy now and pay later or buy now and, and pay never. So we don't have an economy that would naturally have low interest rates. And if you naturally have low interest rates, then the decisions that are made and the investments that are made can be supported by those naturally low rates. But when you don't have that, when you have rates that have been manipulated by a central bank, initially, you know, the, 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 the people in the, in, in the economy, um, the investors, consumers, they don't know the difference between interest rates being low for natural reasons or artificial reasons. They just react to the low interest rates. But because the low interest rates are um, artificial, they, they can't last. And so unlike a situation where rates are low for legitimate economic reasons, where the investments based on those interest rates can be supported long term, when they're artificially low, they can't be. So all those mistakes are made uh, because rates are, are too low. Now, in the 2008 period, right, we had low interest rates, artificially low interest rates for 2005 and six and seven. And so a lot of the mistakes that were made as a result of that uh, were focused or concentrated in the real estate market. Too many people bought too many homes. They bought homes they couldn't afford. They took on mortgages they couldn't really afford. It was a speculative mania. Banks loaned money uh, to borrowers uh, that really couldn't repay. But and nobody was thinking properly when everybody was impacted by these artificially low interest rates. And when that period came to an end 
you know, 2007, 2008, everything collapsed. The market came in to try to correct all of these imbalances that had built up over the years of artificially low interest rates. And then we had this great recession, which would have been a lot greater had the government not made the mistake of, of intervening. But my point is that if we had a great recession, when the Fed went from 1% to 5% or five and a quarter or five and a half, wherever the peak was, but if that rate hike produced the great recession, why would people think that this time we're gonna get away with not having a recession at all? Even though this time the Fed didn't stop at one, it went all the way down to zero and it left rates at zero for more than a decade. So rates were lower for much longer than they were back then. And now the Fed finally is hiking rates. Oh, and by the way, we had all that quantitative easing three rounds before COVID and then the mother of all rounds after COVID. None of that happened in, in, in the period leading up to the 08 financial crisis. So you have all this quantitative easing. The Fed blows up its balance sheet. So now, not only is the Fed hiking rates, it's shrinking its balance sheet. In fact, it dropped again this week about 40 or 50 billion. You know, we're now well south, you know, of the, the 8 trillion level. So not only has the Fed hiked interest rates, but it is, you know, sh- sucking out the liquidity. Now, there's a lot more left. It's, it's just started to suck it out. But it wasn't doing that at all in 2007. To, you know, to, that hadn't even happened. So we're, we've had rates lower for longer. We had all that quantitative easing. And now the Fed has raised rates and it's reversing with quantitative tightening. This is a much bigger shock to the system than what the Fed did in 2008. And we built up over the years that the Fed kept rates at zero. Far more uh, malinvestments and misallocations. Much bigger mistakes were made for a much longer period of time during this period. So now there's a lot more that needs to be fixed. A lot more mistakes need to be corrected. Misallocations need to be undone. So we have to have, by definition, a much bigger recession now than the one we had then. And now, if that was the great recession, this is an even greater recession because we have a lot more mistakes to fix, a lot more sins to atone for. Yet, despite all that, you got people who think, oh, no, we're not even going to have a recession. We're just going to get away with all that, all of that QE, all those years of 0% interest rates. And when the party ends, we, we, we don't even have a recession. Right? We take all these drugs out of our system and, 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 and we're still actually going to be high. No hangover, no nothing. So it makes no sense uh, that anybody would believe that. We got a quick break. I'm going to pick it back up and continue on that. And I got an example uh, that I used in my first book. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, but it was in my first book, uh, Crash Proof, about how the government distorts the economy. I got it from my dad. Uh, so I'm going I'm I'm to go over that example on the other side of this break. 
As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. All booms sow the seeds of the next bust. So the bust, the recession, is actually uh, the good part. It's where the mistakes are corrected. The bad part is the boom. Now, of course, the boom is the fun part, right? Uh, and so nobody wants the boom to end. But the sooner a boom ends, the sooner you can start fixing the mistakes because they're not real. They're not legitimate. They're, they're an illusion. Now, a lot of people think that these boom and bust cycles are somehow, you know, just inevitable. They're just part of the free market. We just have to suck it up and bear it. It's like uh, uh, one of the costs of capitalism that there's inherent booms and busts. And that's not true. It's government interference in capitalism, government manipulation, particularly with interest rates, that causes this so-called business cycle. If you, if you take government out of the equation and have sound money uh, and have free markets, you're not really going to see uh, these, these, these booms and busts. So it's government uh, that is responsible, not the free market. And an analogy that my dad used, uh, you know, told me a long, long time ago, and I, I put it in my, my first book just to explain it. Um, and he said, look, imagine that you run a restaurant and then a circus comes to town. And, you know, when the circus comes to town, they, they used to have traveling circuses. They don't really have them anymore. You know, when I was a kid, I, I went to Barnum and Bailey a circus. And, uh, and it's a shame that they, they really don't, don't do those anymore because I, I, I remember having a lot of fun going to the circus. Uh, but, you know, so a circus would come to town and then, you know, all these extra people, you know, were there, you know, a small town at circus comes in and you have, you know, all the, the, the entertainers that are there, you know, uh, come into town. And so now there's all these extra people. And let's say all the people in the circus, uh, while they're in town, they, they start eating out at my restaurant. And, and now all of a sudden my restaurant is really busy. I've got a lot more people at my restaurant than I normally have. It's crowded. Maybe people are waiting you know, outside uh, for a table. And so I look at this and I misinterpret these signals. Maybe I don't even realize that the circus is in town. I just see a lot of people, you know, at my restaurant. I'm like, wow, this is great. My restaurant's really popular. Uh, you know, I need to expand. I, you know, and so maybe I, I, I rent some extra space. Maybe there's, you know, some space next door. And so I expand my restaurant so I can put in more tables. I hire some more uh, waiters or, uh, you know, people to, to handle this, this big increase in my business. 
so I do all this stuff. I make these investments. I hire people. And everything is good. And then, you know, the circus leaves. They pull up their stakes and they pack everything up and they, they go to the next town. Well, well, now what happens? You know, it's, it's a bust. My restaurant is empty now, right? The customers are gone. And so now I realize, I screwed up, you know? And so what do I got to do? I, I got to try to get rid of the extra space that I, that I took out. Uh, you know, I got to lay off some workers that I never should have hired because my, my decisions were influenced by the circus that distorted stuff. Well, that's what happens with the Fed. The Fed artificially sends lowers interest rates, and that sends out false signals, like the circus sent out false signals that there was more demand for my restaurant. No, there, there really wasn't more demand. It was just temporary. And, and, and so interest rates are low, and businesses start to do things based on these low interest rates, and then interest rates aren't low anymore. The Fed can't keep them down indefinitely. Eventually, they have to go up. And, and now, you know, the people that you might have hired, uh, you need to fire them. A, a lot of stuff has to be reversed because it's unsupported by the actual term structure of, of, of money and, and time preferences. You, it, it, the, 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 the signals that a free market would have sent uh, were, were short-circuited by the government. And the investors, you know, or the people don't know the difference. They just react to the low rates, just like... Uh, the, the restaurateur reacted to the extra people uh, showing up at his restaurant. Now, anyway, so the other thing, though, I wanted to talk about. So not only is it is it wrong for people to expect that we're not going to have a recession, we're going to have one hell of a recession. One of the reasons, though, that people are now convinced that we're going to skirt one is because we haven't had one. Right. Oh, you know, look at where the economy is. The Fed has already raised rates up to five percent and we're not even in a recession. I mean, the economy is growing. We have low unemployment. I guess we're so resilient uh, that, you know, the, the Fed just did a masterful job, you know, uh, and uh, and we're in, in great shape. People are underestimating this because what I think has delayed the onset of the recession, Now, of course, we actually started the recession and they denied it because, you know, we had two quarters of negative growth and everybody said that doesn't count. Right. Uh, and, and then, you know, we, we started to have the positive numbers. But I think the main reason that the recession hasn't started in earnest, meaning in a way that the unemployment rate is really up and it's obvious that we're in a recession. The reason for that is the unprecedented fiscal stimulus that has accompanied this uh, tightening cycle. Yes, the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates and uh, shrunk in its, its balance sheet, right? So that is a, a, a tightening. So we've had restrictive monetary policy in that respect. But fiscal policy has been highly stimulative. In fact, it's been unprecedented in the amount of stimulus. If you look at the sheer size of the deficits and the money that has been spent, especially the money that was you know, spent during COVID and immediately after COVID. So I think we were able to buy ourselves some time before the recession 
by spending a bunch of borrowed money. So it's the deficits. In fact, I've seen analysis. If you just take the government deficits out, we'd be in a recession without that money, without the spending, because we're not really measuring economic growth when we look at GDP. We're just measuring spending, right? There's no differentiation uh, between what the money is spent on. It doesn't matter if you're building a factory or just buying uh, imports. It's still spending. The government spending money is the same as a private citizen investing money. It all counts uh, toward the GDP. So we borrowed trillions of dollars and spent it. And, you know, that all went to the GDP. But what we ignored was the other side of the ledger. In order to get that GDP growth, we had to borrow an unprecedented amount of money. And the national debt continues to surge. We're now above 33.73 trillion, almost not quite at 34 trillion. We'll be there soon. We are adding debt three to four trillion pace per year, even though the official budget deficits now are only two trillion. You know, we're probably adding debt at about twice that rate without the recession. Normally, uh, when you have a period of economic growth, which everybody tells us we had, right? We had all this economic growth. Normally, that's when deficits come down. The economy is growing, right? Not only do, doesn't it need fiscal stimulus, but a growing economy on its own automatically reduces deficits. How? Well, growing economy produces more tax revenue and fewer people need government assistance when the economy is good. So normally, during a good economy, the deficits are coming down. But this time, in this supposed good economy, the deficits are skyrocketing. And those deficits uh, have been helping to keep the economy out of recession. But they can't do that indefinitely. And when the recession hits, it's going to be so much worse as a result of all that extra debt that we accumulated to postpone the onset of that recession. We got another uh, commercial break. We'll be right back for the rest of the podcast. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Another thing I want to point out regarding the um, so-called strong economy that has delayed the onset of the recession, and not only recession, but financial crisis. And again, the financial crisis was postponed by the Fed, too, because that started in March. And if it wasn't for the Fed's backstopping the banks, we would be deep in that crisis right now. So we postponed that, too. But again, 
at the at the cost of, of of making it worse. But another thing that's apparent from the fact that this so-called uh, strong economy has failed to shrink the deficit, the fact that the deficits have actually gotten worse, expanded during this strong economy, is more proof that the economy isn't strong because the deficits are acting as if the economy were weak because that's normally when you see growing deficits. They grow when the economy is weak, not when the economy is strong. They keep telling us the economy is strong, yet the deficits are growing. And and again, this is more proof that Bidenomics is just a complete fraud. In fact, you know, I never even heard about Bidenomics until earlier this year. They somebody made it up and started talking about Bidenomics when they wanted to convince us that a bad economy was good. So they came up with Bidenomics and said, hey, this is why we've got this great economy. And it's kind of like a campaign. And and they're trying to sell it uh, to the public. But the public ain't buying because it's a bunch of BS. I mean, that's what it is. It's like a slick marketing campaign, you know, uh, you know that you have. Maybe it's like a used car lot, and they're, and they're trying to, you know, sell you on this lemon, and they're making up a bunch of stuff. But you know, you you look at the car, you you know, test drive it, and you realize that you know it's not what they're telling you. But they're trying to move it off the lot, and and that's what they're doing uh, with 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 the economy, Bidenomics. They're trying to convince voters that the economy is great. Well, if the economy was great, you wouldn't have to convince the voters. They would already know, right? The sign of a good economy is people know, right? Yeah, this is good, right? My life is getting better, right? I, I have a lot more savings now than I had before. I paid down a lot of my debt. I'm in much better shape. Uh, you know, I have money left over uh, after I pay my bills. Or, you know, maybe I quit that second job I used to have. I don't need it anymore. Right? I have a good economy. I got, a, I got a job that really pays me a lot of money. I don't, I don't need to moonlight. Right? I, I can leave that job and, and, and have just, just, just one job. But that's a good economy. Or maybe, maybe the economy is so good that if you have a married couple, maybe one person, maybe the wife could quit her job entirely. Hey, things are great. My husband's making so much money, I don't have to work anymore. I can stay home and, and spend more time with the kids and and, and, and work on it, charities or whatever she wants, right? That, that would be a good economy. People would know that. They wouldn't have to be told over and over again, hey, you idiot, the economy is great. You know, I hear all these uh, Democrats out there, you know, they're on television. They're like, you know, what's wrong with the voters? Why, why aren't they giving Biden credit for this great economy? Again, there's no great economy to give him credit for. The voters are blaming him for the lousy economy. You know, it reminds me of, of that joke, right? A, a woman, uh, you know, comes home early, opens up her bed, the bedroom door, and her husband is in there in bed, you know, with another woman. <laughs> and she catches him in the act. And then the, the husband is like, oh, no, no, nothing's going on here. Who are you going to believe? Me or your lying eyes, right? <laughs> That's what Biden is saying. Who are you going to believe? You know, your lying eyes are me. I'm telling you the economy is great. You know, so just because it looks lousy from your perspective, don't believe your eyes. You know, I'm telling you the truth. Everything is great. And But, you know, nobody is buying this nonsense. That's why the poll numbers are, are, are so bad for Biden. And also, 
the inflation numbers, everybody, again, getting excited about these inflation numbers coming down. One of the main reasons that they're lower on a year-over-year basis is the, the, the comparison period. Prices went way up in the previous year. And so now, when you compare, let's say, uh, October of 2023 to October of 2022, right, it's an easy comparison because prices went way up from October 2021 to October 2022. So prices were way up here. And so now, you know, the comparisons make the numbers look better because, you know, we've had a little bit of a pullback since that big number. But over time, probably by, you know, early to mid-2024, the comparisons are going to be a lot harder, right? Just as the markets are expecting the Fed to cut rates, these inflation numbers are going to start to look a lot worse based on the year-over-year comparisons. And, of course, the other thing that's going to be making them worse is going to be the weak dollar, which I expect uh, the dollar to be much weaker by the middle of 2024. And I expect commodity prices, in particular oil prices, which are still now below $80 a barrel, but I expect them to be well north of $100 a barrel uh, you know, by the middle of next year and could be substantially above 100 depending on, on how low the dollar is. But that's when you're going to start to see a lot of you know, movement in the CPI in the other direction. So not only uh, do investors have it wrong to expect a soft landing when we're going to get recession, hard landing, but they're wrong to think inflation is going back down to 2%. It's not. It's going up. We're getting the worst of both worlds. We're going to get a hard landing in the economy and a financial crisis and more inflation. People just believe that the Fed can you know, bring the inflation rate back down and we're going to get these low interest rates. It's not going to happen. The Fed can't do that anymore. It's over. The only reason it got away with it for as many times as it did was because the inflation rate was still officially below 2%. Well, it's not anywhere near 2%. It's way above it. And on and top of that, we have all this inflation that the Fed created for over a decade that has finally uh, worked its way out of Wall Street to Main Street. Again, a lot of the early inflation entered the economy through the financial markets, through the stock market, the real estate market, the bond market, uh, you know, antiques, cryptocurrencies, all kinds of asset prices were driven higher by inflation. And nobody cared about it when asset prices were going up. But I always said that eventually all that inflation that started out in asset prices would end up in consumer prices. It would go from the stock market to the supermarket. And that's what's happening. Now, in COVID, right, we bypassed the financial markets, and we injected the inflation directly into consumer goods by mailing people checks to spend. And so that's one of the reasons you saw the big spike in the inflation rates. But it's not simply the inflation we created during COVID that we're dealing with. It's all the inflation that we created before COVID that has finally worked its way into the real economy. And so we still have a long way to go when it comes to Uh, price hikes. This is just the tip of a big iceberg that we've experienced. And so the optimism is completely unfounded. In fact, look at real estate 
how high real estate prices are. I, I looked at um, a, a, a comparison of, um, of rent versus buy. Because right? whenever you're looking to buy property, you can do a basic analysis. And during the housing bubble, I was renting in you know, the, the what, 1997, 98, I mean, no, 2003 and four and five and six, I was, I was renting houses. And the reason I was renting, I mean, I knew it was a bubble, but it was so much cheaper to rent than to buy. And that was an indication that the real estate market was overpriced because it, it didn't make sense to buy when it was so much cheaper to rent. The reason people were buying is because they, they thought there was going to be appreciation. I remember I told the story. I was, I was renting this condo uh, in, in Connecticut, and there was, uh, I, I, I was in a condo. I was in an apartment complex on the water in, 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 in Connecticut. I was in Stanford. It was after I got divorced. I had been living in New Canaan, got divorced, and I rented an apartment in Stanford. And this was like 2005 um, or something, you know, maybe like the top of the real estate market. And 2005, 2006. And so there were these condos that were uh, next door to me. And I went to open house just for kicks because I knew I wasn't going to buy one. But I went over there and um, I looked at some of these some of these condos. And I remember the prices. It was something like five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars And so I, you know, I, I, I did the math in my head. You know, what would the mortgage payment be? You know, and the, forgetting about the down payment. The mortgage was going to be more than my rent, what I was paying next door. Now, I was in a brand new building. Uh, it, it, it was modern. I had all kinds of amenities. It was much nicer than these condos next door. Much, much nicer. And my rent was lower. And so there was a realtor there. And I said, well, you know, you know, I live next door. And it's a much, much nicer building. I have a lot more amenities. I, it's, the, 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 you know, why the hell would I want to buy this? Why would anybody want to buy this? Because, you know, they have more units available. I know, you know, I just moved in and there, you know, I, I picked one, but there's, there's a lot of vacancies or availability. Why would somebody buy this when you can rent? And they said, well, because, you know, when you move out, you're not going to have any equity. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? They said, well, if you buy this, when you go and move out, you can sell it. And then you're going to make all this money on the appreciation. <laughs> I told the, the realtor, I said, well, why the hell would it appreciate? I just told you it's already too expensive. You can you can, you can rent a place next door for a lot less money. So why would the price go up? And he said, well, you just don't understand real estate. That's not how it works because real estate prices go up. And, if, you know, and so you, it, it, when, in the future, it's always going to be higher. So you're going you're gonna to make money if you buy. And I said, oh, okay, so let me see if I understand real estate, how, how it works. I said, so I put up a lot of money and I pay an expensive mortgage to live in this dump instead of living in this really nice place next door that's got better views, more amenities, a nicer, newer building, I, I give up living in that nice place. I pay extra money to live in this dump. And then because I did that, I'm gonna be rewarded with appreciation because now some other idiot who's even dumber than me is gonna pay me an even higher price not to live in that nice apartment and to live in a dump because he's going to be able to sell it to an even greater fool at a higher price. And all you have to do to make all this money is live in this, you know, rundown place, right? And overpay. This is what this realtor was telling me. So, you know, but so the prices had to come down because it was cheaper to rent. Well, today, today it's even cheaper. It's like a record low 
for rent versus buy. Because the mortgage rates are now like 7.5% and the prices are way up. Even though rents have gone up a lot, it's still a deal. It's still a bargain to rent. And so what does that mean? That means that real estate prices are too high uh, relative to rents. Now, one thing that could happen to fix it is rents could go way up. And they could. I mean, there's going to be more upward pressure on rents because houses are so expensive. And so more and more people are going to want to rent, and that is going to drive up rents. So all these people that think, oh, rents aren't going to go up anymore. No, they're going to go up more uh, because nobody could buy because it's too damn expensive uh, until the prices crash. And so more people are going to rent. You know, I'm seeing a lot of people now trying to say, hey, you know, we shouldn't look at owner's equivalent rent anymore because it's going up and the real rents aren't. Uh, we should subtract that. You know, I was saying the opposite a couple of years ago. You remember on this podcast when the CPI was only going up a little bit, and I said that's BS because a third of it is owner's equivalent rent, and owner's equivalent rent isn't going up, but real rents are skyrocketing, and they're not in the CPI. Well, now they're finally making it into the CPI, but now people don't want to count it. Well, then they shouldn't have counted it back then. You know, they want, it, they want to have it both ways. They want to use owner's equivalent rent when it's not going up, but then when it goes up, they don't want to use it anymore. They want to use whatever housing numbers make the CPI uh, look lower. But the reality is rents are going to go up. But some of this is going to be real estate prices going down. Because if it doesn't make sense to buy a house, well, people aren't going to buy, right? Uh, only if they expect the appreciation. See, that's why the people back then in 2005, that's why people were buying those dumps uh, in, in next door. You know, people expected the appreciation. But the minute nobody expected appreciation, there was no reason to live in that dump. You might as well live someplace nice if you're not going to get the appreciation. And I, I don't know what happened. I don't know how much those prices dropped, but I'm sure they really crashed uh, in, in, in the years following that open house. You know, I, I, I never went back. I have no idea if that, that real estate agent, uh, you know, <laughs> if they still, if they stayed in, 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 that, uh, in that occupation. But the point is that we have a huge problem in, in, in the housing market that is revealed by, by those numbers. Uh, and, and again, even though rents have gone up, renting is still a bargain compared to buying at the current, at the current price. You know, we also, we got the PPI numbers that came out on, uh, on, on Wednesday. We got the CPI that I discussed on, 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 on Tuesday, which was better than expected. And the same thing happened with the PPI. So that's also part of the, the optimism on Wall Street is the, the, the PPI number, where prices in, um, in October... Wholesale prices actually dropped by 0.5%. Nobody expected that. The, the range of expectations was from zero uh, to 0.2. And um, we got minus 0.5. And the year-over-year uh, -year number was supposed to come out at 2%, and it came out at just 1.3. And that was far below the 2.2 from the prior month. So this also got people excited. Now, when you take out food and energy, the uh, core was up 2.4. I'm not sure what expectations were 
uh, and the year-over-year -year was up 2.9, and that was following a, a slightly upward revised 3% year-over-year for the prior number. But these numbers have got more people thinking that we are on some kind of glide path down to 2%. And they don't realize that that's not the case at all. And, and some of these numbers are being distorted because even if you look beneath the surface, there are a lot of prices that are still going up quite a bit. It's just being overshadowed by some prices that are temporarily down, but they're not going to keep that. They're going to move higher. You know, we also got the retail sales numbers that came out for October, which were lower than expected. Again, this is more of the weak economic data uh, that's been coming up. But again, these retail sales numbers are actually a lot weaker uh, than the numbers because they're nominal. They're not adjusted for inflation. So year over year, retail sales, um, these are, uh, oh no, these are just a month over month. I don't even see, I don't have the, re the year over year numbers. Um, but they were down 0.1% on the month. And retail prices were not down on the month. So they were up. And, and so that means that spending is falling more because people are just buying less stuff and they're paying higher prices. That's part of the reason uh, that this spending doesn't translate into Biden popularity. Not like people are buying extra stuff. They're just spending more money for food. You know, they don't have money left over for the extra stuff. That's why they're pissed, right? Because they have to spend so much money just to make ends meet, just to put food on the table, to keep the, you know, the electricity on. You know, they're spending money on that. And that doesn't translate into a lot of votes uh, for, for, for Biden. The other news item that, that came out today is that the government shutdown has been averted because Biden, I think a couple hours ago, signed this stopgap spending bill that passed the House. Uh, even under the new uh, uh, leadership, it still passed the House. I mean, there was some opposition there uh, from a few Republicans, uh, you know, libertarian-minded, uh, fiscally responsible. There's a handful of those there. Uh, although they, they, didn't, they didn't really do much when, when Trump was president, but they're, they're trying now. Uh, but they, they get outnumbered. And, and so it, it went through the House. It went through the Senate. And, and of course, Biden signed it. He's not going to not sign a bill that lets the government keep spending money. But what this does now is it postpones uh, the hard choices, which, of course, will never get made. But it postpones an actual budget till next year. So... The uh, congressmen, everybody can go home and enjoy their holiday without having to worry about voting for additional spending. They're not going to have to deal with that until January 19th for part of the spending. And then I think a lot of it, they don't have to worry about that until February 2nd. Now, I would much rather have a shutdown. You know, everybody says, oh, we can't shut down the government. Uh, well, I think if we shut down the government, that's better than having the economy shut down because we failed to shut down the government. The biggest problem in the economy is the government itself and all the spending. And shutting it down is part of the solution. Uh, but nobody wants to do that. And of course, if, if there really was a shutdown, it would actually be a little bit more popular. Because, you know, every time we've shut the government down, it, it hasn't really shut down. I mean, everybody still has to pay their taxes. 
it's not like, you know, when the government is shut down, they stop taking taxes out of your pay. Because if that was the case, everybody would be rooting for a shutdown and nobody would ever want the government to reopen. The problem is the government shuts down, but we still have to pay for it. Our taxes are the same whether the government is open or closed, right? That's part of the problem, right? We have to pay for the services. What the government will do during a shutdown is they'll make a big deal. They'll, they'll close the national park and then they'll show people showing up at a national park with the little kids and they can't get in because the government is shut down. But the irony of that is whenever they shut down a national park, they have to send in government workers to keep people out because it's shut down. They always have more government workers at the national parks when they're shut down to keep people out than they have when it's open to let them in. So if they can afford to send all these people to the national parks to make sure no one gets in, then they can afford to have fewer people there to let them in and take the tickets. It's all a big show. They're, they're trying to convince the public that, oh, this is terrible. We need, you know, we need to get the government back in business. But they're always in business. They never actually shut down. That is the problem. Now, some government workers don't have to show up. They love it. It's a paid holiday, right? The government workers, they, they, because they get to stay home and collect their checks. None of these government workers lose out on a nickel of their pay during the shutdown. They all, they all get their money. Uh, some of them might get it late, but, but you know, everybody gets paid, so the taxpayer gets stuck with that. I mean, if we had a government shutdown where they said, okay, the government shut down, nobody has to pay any taxes, and, and we're, not, we're not paying any money, uh, that'd be better. So the problem is we don't get a real shutdown. We get a fake shutdown. But a real shutdown would be better than continuing on our present course because our present course leads us to disaster. It leads us to a complete economic financial crisis, a sovereign debt and currency crisis. And it would be worth averting that crisis to shut down the government. Because believe me, if we have a collapse of the dollar, the government is basically shut down. Because when the money that they print doesn't have any value, what can it do? Right? What good is it? You have a printing press. You can print this money, but nobody wants it because it doesn't buy anything. Well, you've effectively shut yourself down. Right, because your checks don't have any, any purchasing power. So we're going to have a government shutdown one way or another. It's better to shut it down on our terms and then deal with the problems than to let the market shut it down uh, with a, a, a dollar crisis. Um, I also wanted to uh, touch on something I mentioned on the last podcast because I, I, I didn't clarify this or, or, or conclude with it, but I, I talked about uh, the fact that I'm giving up these uh, my FINRA licenses, my 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 stockbroker licenses. You know, I'm an option principal, a general securities principal, a financial principal, a muni bond principal. I've got all these licenses that you know allow me to do things that I should be able to do without these licenses, right? It's the government shouldn't uh, be able to force me to get a license to pursue uh, one of these occupations. I mean, it, you know, if they want to have a you know a, a voluntary a group that I can join uh, to get me some kind of accreditation. So maybe when people are shopping around for a stockbroker, if, if I'm a member of a certain organization, that may bring me some credibility. Uh, but if I can generate credibility on my own, uh, you know, then why do I need a license? Right? I mean, I should just be able to practice whatever profession I want. And if people want to work with me, uh, then they work with me. You know, as long as I don't lie to them or defraud them. And of course, if you commit fraud, that's a crime. 
right? If you defraud your customers, if you lie to your customers, you know, you're breaking laws. I mean, you could get in trouble just because, you know, there's no license doesn't mean it's a lawless society. You can't do whatever you want. But the government says if, if you want to do these things, you got to join this organization. And now this organization says, well, if you want to do these things, you got to have all these licenses. You got to pass all these exams. You got to take all this continuing education. So I don't want to do this anymore. But I mentioned this investigation and I, of me, because FINRA investigated me for maybe like a year or two. And I mean, it was really a pain in, in the ass because they kept coming back, right? I said they, they were like giving me a, 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 a financial, you know, exam, uh, but they were looking for, for everything, right? They, they, they were looking at all my accounts, all my investments, uh, accounts of companies, companies that I had an interest in. They wanted their financials. They wanted all kinds of information. They didn't even know what they were looking for. They just were hoping they would find that I did something wrong, but they didn't know what I did wrong because they had no probable cause to believe I did anything wrong, as far as I know. Uh, and, and they never could tell me what they were looking for. But I, I wanted to point out that after the end of this long, drawn out, and I, I, had a, I had a lawyer working with me because, you know, you never want to do this by yourself. So I had all these legal bills, uh, you know, for interacting with these regulators, you know, more and more information. And then they would, you know, and it was hard for me. It would take up my time to find this information because I didn't even keep it. I would have to go to these financial institutions, other companies, and say, hey, can you get me these records? Because they wanted years and years of records, all the checks that were written. You know, I didn't even keep this stuff, right? I, I, had, to, I had to go find it so I could give it to these regulators so they, can, they could, you know, give me a financial, you know, proctology exam, whatever they were doing. But at the end of it, they found nothing. Now, they didn't apologize to me and say, oh, we were sorry that we put you through this and wasted all your time. They said, okay, you know, it's over. You know, we didn't find anything. You know, complete waste of my time. But they don't care. The regulars, you know, they, they, you know, they just do that. Uh, but the government could never have gotten away with that. The government couldn't have done this. This is a violation of my Fourth Amendment rights. They, they couldn't have gone on this wild goose fishing expedition, just hoping they would catch something. Maybe I did something wrong somewhere. Um, uh, but they were able to do it because they're private. But they're not really private if the government forces me to be a member. How could you say you're a private company when it's the government that's forcing people to be a member of your company? Because in capitalism, it's voluntary. I don't do business with somebody. I don't join a club unless I want to join. If you're forced at gunpoint by the government to join a club, right? how could you say that's private? It's not. It's the government. They just pretend it's a private. Now, it's private in that there's a bunch of people that work there who are making a bunch of money, right? Yeah, the guys that work at FINRA make a lot more money than the guys that work at the SEC. That's for sure, because it doesn't count as a government agency. And in fact, one of the ways they make a lot of money is by fining all of their members, right? They come up with these crazy fines, particularly on the smaller members. Now, they find the big members, too, and the big members, you know, the big companies, yeah, they can afford it. They're huge companies. But a lot of these fines put the small companies out of business or prevent small companies from even going into business. And that's great for the big companies, right, because it keeps out the competition. And, of course, when you keep out the competition, the, the quality of investment advice goes down. The other thing I forgot to point out when I talked about my last podcast, this was one of the biggest uh, uh, ways that FINRA, harms investors. Again, remember, 
everything the government does, you get the opposite. So they set up FINRA supposedly to protect the small investors from shysters in, on Wall Street, right? It had the reversed effect. Now, Wall Street won't even work with the small investor. If you look at most Wall Street firms, they have very high minimums. If you want to work with a full-service brokerage firm where the broker is going to give you advice right, on how to invest your money, usually the minimum is $50,000, $100,000, $250,000. Why do they have these high minimums? Why can't you just send a broker $5,000 and have him work with you? Because he can't afford it. Because the regulatory costs of every account you open are so high that you can't charge a small investor enough money to break even on a relationship. So you can only work with much wealthier investors because of these rules. So the government wants to protect the little guy. Well, now the little guy can't even find a broker because it's so expensive to work with him. In fact, uh, you know, the way the arbitration system works, one of the other reasons you can't work with a small investor is because if they lose any money, they can sue you and you got to give it back, right? The way they have it set up, it's arbitration. Let's say you open up a five or $10,000 account and you lose $5,000 and then you, you go to, you know, you just file an arbitration. The firm is just going to pay you because it costs, you know, twenty-five, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to defend itself, even if they did nothing wrong, well, how are they going to spend $25,000, $50,000 on a $5,000 claim that they can't? So it's like they say these small accounts come with a free put. Well, they don't want to give away free puts. So they just don't open the accounts. They're not worth the hassle. And so what happens to all these little investors that can't find any decent help because the government made it too expensive to work with them? Well, they fall victim to all kinds of cons, right? The people who are breaking the laws, right? You know, they'll work with them, right? They're not regulated. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're there and, or they just, they just make a lot of mistakes because they, they, they go open up a discount broker and the discount broker doesn't help them. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're not really trained investors. They, they, you know, and they, they get, they get taken in uh, on, uh, on bad investments because they don't have anybody helping them. Thanks to the government, right? They can't get any help. So all this has backfired. The average investor, would be far better off if government got out, if we, if we shut down FINRA completely, right? And the SEC too, but I mean, FINRA's worse. FINRA's way worse than the SEC. If we got rid of FINRA, right, and, and got rid of the requirements for brokers to be licensed, right? If we just had free market and competition and reputation, right, it would be much better. You'd have much more brokers out there. Investors would have a lot more choice. The small investor would have a lot of people willing to work with them. It would be a much better market. Uh, costs would be lower. Uh, uh, and, and Everything would be better. But the government has screwed the whole thing up. Anyway, that's it for this podcast. I am going to be off all next week. I'm taking next week off. I'm going to be out on a boat uh, in, the, in the Caribbean here. But I will be back the following week. Uh, with more podcasts. I might tweet, though. If you're not following me on Twitter, follow me because I will have my, my laptop with me on the boat. There is internet or Wi-Fi, whatever. So if I see something interesting, you know, I, I, you know, I might tweet or who knows, maybe I'll put something out on Instagram uh, or something like that. So make sure you're following me on, on social media because uh, just in case something really big happens, probably not going to do a podcast, but I might want to find a way to comment on it. And by the way, speaking about comments, if you like this video, make sure and give me the thumbs up. And if you're not currently a subscriber, subscribe to this YouTube channel. Bye for now. 